Let's, uh, let's pray together once again. Father, we do need you. Lord, there are so many ways and times in which we think we are sufficient on our own, and yet, God, we need you. Lord, we need you to reveal yourself in ways that we can understand, and Lord, thankfully, you've done that in your word. But God, we pray that you would help us to understand your word and help us to understand you more fully and and how we might apply what you've written there. How we might honor you fully with our lives. How we might glorify you. Lord, thank you for the way that you overlook our inadequacies, the way that you overlook our sin because of what Jesus Christ has done. God, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you guys may remember, we had the joy of changing our address a little over a year ago to uh, the 20837 zip code. And uh, we're just up the street from the Heitzmans and the Knights and just around the corner from a few other people. And, and um, one of the things, kind of as a, a, a home housewarming gift, one of our good friends gave us this picture. And, and uh, it, it's a little bit hard to read in there, but if it looks like a bunch of ampersands, is because it is. Um, we've known Amanda and her family. In fact, her son Preston is, is going to be uh, going with Danielle and I this week to Mfuge. But one of the things Amanda did as a graphic artist, she was contemplating the ampersand. And what it does is it takes two things that are separate and brings them together into unity, into partnership, into fellowship. And at the bottom of the, the, the print there, She put these words from the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-fold cord is not quickly broken. Now, this silly little symbol, in fact, ampersands are really hard to write if you're trying to handwrite them. But this silly little symbol um, is the representative representation of two things that may or may not be similar that are now joined in a union. It's something profound that we have with close friends. It's something, if you're married, that you know you have with your spouse. Two very different people God has joined together and persand together. We have it with one another as, as believers, as followers of Christ, as we've been taken from our fallenness and brought together. And our ampersand with God really is represented not so much by this squiggly little symbol, but by the cross. As God has taken us who are far from him and sent and allowed his son to be that adjoining nature so that we can have fellowship with God. 
that closeness, that intimacy, that fellowship that we have with God is really what I think a lot of the book of First John is all about. So if you have your Bibles and would like to open up to First John or if you want to grab the pew Bible in front of you, please do that. We're going to spend uh, the bulk of our time there. And as you're turning there, by the way, if you don't know where it is, go to the back of the book, back of the Bible, move forward about four books and you'll, or five books and you'll get there. Um, make sure you turn pages closely because the ones right after 1 John are very small. But commentators generally agree that uh, even though this book doesn't have an author, it doesn't have an, a stated author, most people believe that the book of 1 John was written by... Um, the same person who wrote the Gospel of John and likely the other two letters of John. And you could guess his name is John. Right. It's one of the sons of Zebedee. We, and in fact, one of the things that we found with John is that he was also one of Jesus' inner circle disciples. He was the, the disciple who lived longer than any of the others. Um, and it is believed that during the last few decades of the first century that John served in and around Ephesus, acting as sort of a, a regional overseer. And some, of the, some have suggested that this, this letter really reads kind of more like a, a poetic sermon um, was written to some of those Christians, some of those believers in and around Ephesus. But unlike most of the letters, it doesn't have a normal opening. It doesn't have a, a greeting. It doesn't have the blessing. It doesn't have the normal closing. And one of the interesting and challenging things about this letter or this sermon is that it's not linear in its flow. If you're at all analytical, you like arguments to go from A to B to C to D to E, right? We like to watch things flow. Well, John doesn't do that. He kind of goes here and he goes from A to C and back to B to F and back to A and then to C and back to A again and then D. And he just circles all over the place as he addresses issues of life and truth and love. As he really tries to help us understand the complexities and yet the simplicity of our relationship with God, seeking to give us assurance of our salvation. And John begins his letter with language that kind of reminds us of his gospel. If you remember it all from John chapter 1, he's, he says, In the beginning, um, well, I, I've totally messed that up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was. And he uses this beautiful poem. Well, here in, in his letter, he does the same thing. John, 1 John 1, 1 to 4, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, that was, the life that was manifest, we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And essentially, it seems like John is saying, look, I saw these things with my eyes. I saw things happen and I touched Jesus with my hands. I want to convey the truth of what God has done in him and through him. And I'm proclaiming that to you in order that you might have true fellowship with God and that you might know God more fully. 
that that blessing of assurance is something that Jesus that, that John places throughout his letter. In fact, that word that he uses as the word well, fellowship, the word translated fellowship, could also be rendered partnership or communion. And it's the Greek word koinonia. And part of the importance and significance of this is that if we are to have true fellowship with John, he's, he's telling these things so that we can be in fellowship with him or that his first century listeners could be in fellowship with him, but also with God. Through Jesus Christ. And, and so because we have this fellowship with God, it's going to make a difference in our life. It should do something to change us. We should be changed because we have this communion. This communion is a pr- profound privilege. This communion with God, this fellowship, this partnership. And I think, I hope, we'll get to more of the details of this as we consider the context, the contents of the book. But I think it might be helpful to understand it in a, a little bit of a human way. Back um, during various times in, in college, I sang in a choir. And we would take these little tours around, a lot of times around the Midwest. Occasionally we got to go to the South. We came out East for some stuff and up to the Northwest. It was really fun. We even got to go overseas one time. That was really neat. But on our Northern Midwest tour... We were on a bus and we were driving around and, and Danielle and I, we were married at the time. We stayed at this home of, of this family and, and she didn't sing in the choir, but she got to come along because we were married. And it was it was fun. They let us do that. Um, but we stayed with this one family in Michigan and I didn't notice a certain attribute or certain piece of jewelry that our host had. In fact, he had a, a special ring on his finger. It wasn't his wedding ring. But as we were loading up the bus after we had spent the night at this family's house, our bus driver immediately noticed this guy's ring. And he knew that he was a part of the same society that this guy was a part of because they shared a common ring. But it was more than a ring. It was a common bond. They had this fellowship. They'd never met each other. And yet there was this shared understanding of how they were united in some way. They were fellowship. The, the ring gave, became a symbol of their ampersand, their fellowship together. And it's something, if you've ever traveled overseas and met Christians in other contexts, you know what it's like to be have that immediate bond, that immediate unity with other believers. And, and really, John, I think, is trying to help us understand that he's not promoting a club. He's proclaiming the eternal life and fellowship that we have with God. Because of Jesus Christ. It's a bond. It's a communion that is profound. And admission into this fellowship is not marked by a ring or a lapel pin. But by a transformed life because of the communion that we have with God. Transformed life because of what Christ has done for us. So with that in mind, as John proclaims what he has seen in order to instruct us about life in communion with God, he seems to divide his book, this little, this little five-chapter letter, into two sections. In the first section, he basically is saying God is light. And the way we kind of know this, these sections are there is that he, he uses the phrase, this is the message, and he uses that phrase twice. This first time, this is the message that God is light. Look at what it says in 1 John 1, 5. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light is, is so often paralleled with truth and with purity. And if you think about it, light in its purest form has no flaw. 
And using this metaphor of light as a means of describing God helps us to have a tangible way of grasping. Well, sort of. We can't really grasp light, but we can observe light. It gives us a way of grasping the intangible. At Christmas time, we talked briefly about light and, and, how it's, and its properties and how it works. And light can truly be seen when it shines through something or, or on something. But oftentimes, you know, we see light around us, but where are the light beams? It's just emanating. Unless there's fog in a room or unless there's smoke or unless there's a lot of dust in the air, we can't see a light beam. You know those guys who play with laser pointers? Unless it's foggy in a room, you can't see the laser pointer until it's pointed on something that, or it's shining through something. Because God is light, if we are to have fellowship with him, and I I believe that this means that we will walk in the light, we will get to walk in purity and in holiness. This doesn't mean that we will be perfect or holy, but it means that we will allow the purity and the holiness of God's light to shine on us, to shine in the dark and secret places, to heal us, to forgive, to transform Look at what it says in 1 John 1, 6 through 9. It says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, light reveals flaws that need to be addressed. It reveals those inconsistencies between who we say we are as a Christian and who we're really acting like. The other day, Danielle and I were working on one of of our bathrooms at at, at the house. We're kind of renovating something. and, And at one point in time, she said, can you get a flashlight so we can check the paint? And so I got this really bright flashlight and I shined it all over. And in order to help us see, oh, there's a flaw there, there's a thin spot there. Not so the paint could fix itself, but so we could see the flaws and address the flaw in the paint. And I believe that's how in our fellowship, that's how it is in our fellowship with God, that God's light reveals flaws and it's natural for his presence to do that. But you see, it's not for our shame. It's for our sanctification. God's light, His purity, His holiness helps us to see where we need to, uh, where we need to allow Him to adjust, to make changes, to heal and forgive. You see, the beauty of our fellowship with God is that He is doing something to address our sin, our flaw, our shortcomings. And just as the paint can't fix itself, we need him to help us. First John chapter two, verses one to two, it says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, Jesus Christ is that fixer. He is the healer. Jesus Christ is that forgiver. And he does that so that we can be made right with God, but also so that we can begin to walk in the light. 
to walk in perfect fellowship with Him, to obey Him, to obey God. 1 John 2, 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to Him if we keep His commandments. So, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, let me just ask you, you know, we all have those things in our lives that we don't want others to see. We have those secret sins. We don't want the light of God to reveal it. And that may be because we don't want to feel shame and it may be because we don't want to admit our fallenness. But let me encourage you, allow the light of God to shine in those dark places that you don't want anybody to see. Allow Him to purge that from you. Allow the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ to be that healing so that we might reflect God more fully. And friend, I want to just encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you've not yet confessed your sin to God, then let me encourage you to come to the light. Come to the light of Christ and allow Him to shine on you, knowing Knowing that, as it says in Romans 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And even John here in his letter, this won't be on the screen, but John writes in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. You see, the light of God is just like, just like any light, takes some getting used to, and it will take time for old habits and thoughts and ways of, ways of thinking and speaking to adjust in our lives, to conform to that purity, that light of God. But let me encourage you, it will be worth it. So if you're not yet a follower of Christ, confess your sin to the Lord. God wants to be in fellowship with you. But you see, as, as we learn to walk in the light, we'll find that that light, that holiness, that purity will impact our relationship with others. You see, it's so easy for us to be judgmental about the actions and decisions of others. We want to be holy and we want others to be holy too. And so it's easy for us to look at that flaw in someone else's paint and say, you need to fix that. Let me point out all your problems. In fact, Jesus, he kind of addressed that in, in one of his parables parable, when, when he was teaching about, um, about judgment. He said, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye until you've taken the plank. Right? What an image. That plank out of your own eye. And I think John is, is helping us understand that judging isn't going to accomplish what we want to see happen. When you think back over Jesus' earthly ministry, he did have some harsh words to say, but often it was towards the overly religious. He talked with compassion for the sinful and wanting them to come out of darkness of their sin and into the light of his love. And so John urges us to have that same attitude toward one another, the attitude of love, the attitude of compassion that Jesus had toward those who were lost in their sin. First John 2, 9-11 says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother 
is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I mentioned this a little bit last week, but as you know, Andrew and Zoe and I got to go to the SBC annual meeting where we, we there was over 20,000 people there, the 15,000 some odd messengers and a few guests and a few exhibitors. One of the things that really struck me about being there as we're walking in that very first day, we're walking past some people with megaphones and they're standing outside and they're yelling at people saying, you need to confess your sin. You need to repent. And in fact, some of the guys in megaphones are even pointing out people who are walking into the convention center. Now, get this. Everybody walking into that convention center was already a Christian. And yet these people were yelling at them. There was another guy. He had a van plastered on the side of the van were images of aborted babies. And he would drive around with a megaphone telling people, repent of your sin, calling people murderers and blasphemers. Now, I understand his heart. I understand that his intention, his desire to preach the gospel. But I got to tell you, I don't know how effective that method was. See, I too want people to come to Christ. I want people to repent of their sin. I want to get rid of that scourge of abortion. But yelling at people, calling them murderers, judging them, is that really the best way to accomplish that mission? So, beloved, how will you and I respond when a brother or sister in Christ reveals that they are stuck in sin? Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something else, something secret. Will you respond with condemnation or with compassion? Will you respond with judgment or with love? Will you help them out of their sin? Or will you ostracize them? I think there's a difference. You know, there, there are times when all of us will, will get stuck in unrepentant sin and we will willfully continue doing what we, what we shouldn't be doing. And there are times when I think we need to lovingly confront others and there's a time for discipline. And yet even those who are disciplined, even those who are, who are yeah, those who are disciplined, they need to be pursued as well. It's not so that we could condemn them, not so that we can judge them, but so we can help them, love them back into a right relationship with God. For those who do confess their sin and seek help, just getting over, getting over that hurdle is difficult enough. They need encouragement from other members of the body of Christ, not judgment and not condemnation. I, I remember... a. A couple months ago, we were having one of our men's uh, discussion group meetings. We were doing these things on Zoom. We were talking about a, a passage of Scripture. And, and I remember having those butterfly feelings in my, in my gut when I knew I needed to tell something to these guys and ask them to pray for me in this. And it took everything. I, I almost let the moment go. I almost said, no, I'm not going to bring it up. But I got to tell you, when I confessed my sin to my brothers in Christ to some brothers who are here. There was freedom. There wasn't judgment. It was a joy for them to hear it and an encouragement 
to me for them to say, I will be praying for you in that. So, beloved, let me just encourage you. Be willing to hear the confession of one another. Be willing to allow your sin to come into the light. It may not be something we can share with everybody all at the same time, but there may be someone you are close to who is ready to hear, ready to help, ready to help you address those, thin, those flaws, those sins. As you allow the light of God to shine in your life. So, so John not only says that God is light, but in the second half of the book, John talks about the message that God is love. We see this in, in chapter 3, 11 through the end of the book. And because, God, because God is love, we should love one another. Look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And in some ways, it kind of sounds like he's repeating himself. But remember what I told you? John doesn't go linearly. He's, he's going to pop around and do all these different things as he talks about life and truth and love in this cyclical and repetitive manner. And just as we thought about qualities of light, I want us to think for a moment about qualities of love. Think about what love truly is, because love is this deep sense of affection and care for, for someone else. Love is sacrificial. Love gives of itself for the blessing or benefit of others. Love, like light, does not act to bring attention to itself, but rather acts to nurture and to care for the object upon which it's acting. Think about this. For those of you guys who are parents, and all of us at some point have had parents, whether or not they're good, but you, know, you, can, you can debate. But for those of you who are parents... Think about this. Think about the love that you have for your children. Why do you love them? Do you love them because you're hoping that they're going to they're gonna respect you and honor you? It takes kids a really long time to get there, right? A couple years of crying and messing up their clothes and, and screaming and yelling at you and keeping you up all hours of the night. The Zorners know that very well right now. But why do parents do that? Why do we go through that? Out of love. We're not going to get back immediately what we're hoping. In fact, so often when parents, when we're truly loving the way that we should, we don't do it in, in hope of respect. We don't do it in, in hope of love in return. We don't do it so that we hope they'll honor us. We do it because it's the right thing to do. And when we think about God being love, he acts in that same sort of way, that selfless, sacrificial way. In fact, look at what John writes in, in chapter 4, verse, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. God is love and is the source of love. And I believe that we truly don't understand love until we understand love from God. Until we understand who he is as this great and mighty, awesome creator of the universe would willingly give up his son. 
so that you and I might have a relationship with him. Because God is love, when we truly have fellowship with God, we get to walk in and exhibit that same sort of love with one another. John, 1 John 3, 16 to 18 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth you see love is more than sentiment love acts god did not simply leave us in our sin but he out of love he sent his son as that propitiation or that full payment for our sin and god in in love acted for our benefit and because he did that we get to do the same as people who walk in fellowship with him. But I think there's another element that John points out in love. That God being loved, one of the beautiful things that God does is that he, he allows, well, in love, love and fear cannot coexist. I don't know if you catch, caught what, what Carl said in his prayer. Did you guys hear what he said? We have no fear in coming to you. We have no fear of judgment because of what Christ has done for us. There is no fear for us to come before God. And in love, there should be no fear as we come together with one another because Jesus has taken the punishment for our sin and on himself, on himself we have no reason to fear judgment. Jesus paid it all. 1 John four eighteen to 21 says, There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear for For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And we love because he first loved us. And anyone, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. When it comes to how we exhibit that same sort of love as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be able to confidently love one another and confess our sin to one another. We have been forgiven so much from God. And we have no reason to fear judgment from one another if we are truly loving one another the way that I think God has called us to. But let me, let me talk a little bit about this idea of love just for a moment from a little bit of an earthly standpoint. Because we, we talked about the fact that God is love. But there are a lot of people who would turn that around and they might say love is God. And I think in turning it around, people, people mean that because love is the pinnacle, we should love in such a way that others will be able to do whatever they want. Back when, high, when I was in high school, you may have heard this phrase before. People would sometimes say, if you love me, you'll let me. And, and a lot of times people would use that phrase as, as a means of saying, hey, if you love me, you'll let me sleep with you. 
But I think today, because people view love as God, they've so distorted what true love is, not this sacrificial, self-giving love, but they've taken love as this distortion. And so they'll say, well, if you love me, you'll let me do what I want. If you love me, you'll accept me for who I think I am today and endorse all of, all of me. If you'll love me, you'll celebrate this. That's not love. That's not love. Think back to a parent's love for their children. In love, a parent would not allow a child to do something that would be so destructive and would endanger them to a severe degree. For instance, you wouldn't allow your children to, to, to ride their bike, maybe not even ride their bike without a helmet, but you wouldn't let them ride their bike on the beltway, would you? You wouldn't let them do things that would put them in such extreme danger that they could lose their lives. And yet, so many folks in our society want to say that out of love, we should allow our children to decide their own gender. What do you feel like today, a boy or a girl? And I'm not trying to be mean or disparaging to people who might have, might be wrestling with that, with that gender dysphoria. But I want you to understand that if we don't help our children explore who God made them to be, we are being destructive to them. And what I I mean is that if God made them to be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, He's made them unique in that. Feeling one way or feeling another way isn't going to change how God made them. God made them in His image. I'm not, this isn't coming out right. Because I think that one of the things we need to do is understand that God created male and female. Only two. As much as everybody else would want us to add the whole alphabet of things. Now, we need to help them understand when they begin to question, when they begin to wonder, oh, but I like this. We need to help them to explore how did God make you that boy or that girl that he wants you to be? Because God is love and gave himself so that we could be the people that he made us to be. We get to do the same giving ourselves for one another so that we can lead each other to be who God made us to be, not who we think we should be, who God made us to be. And we get to do this in fellowship with him. And in the final chapter of his letter, John writes in, in John, 1 John five sixteen to 19, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. And I do not say that we should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. And then we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You see, all of this talk about sin and confessing and praying, 
sin that leads to death is under that big heading of God is love. As we exhibit God's love in our lives, we don't endorse people's actions, but in love pray for them and seek their holiness. Let me just close with one, one final thing. If you have your Bibles and, and look in the very last verse of, of 1 John. Chapter 5, verse 21. John writes, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This seems like a very odd way for him to finish his letter. You see, John doesn't ever mention idols. He doesn't say anything about them until right here at the very end. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. But when you think about it, when we succumb to idol worship, we essentially make God into our image. We believe that God created us in his image. But now when we worship idols, we're making God into our image. We think God would want us to be happy. And so we assume that God will endorse all of our sinful behaviors. We think that a God in our image would, would change with the shifting sands, the shifting changes in the world. And that he would be okay with what's going on morally and spiritually and politically. But in keeping ourselves from idols, we get to worship God as the God that he is. We get to understand him as he has revealed himself in creation and as he has revealed himself in his word. We get to worship that God. He is the perfect example of holiness. God is light. We are not. We need to allow his light to shine on us rather than our dimmed and tainted light to distort the true image of who he is. As we walk in his light, we get to reflect his light into the world. God is love. He is the standard of love. He loves sacrificially, not endorsing all of our sinful behaviors, but loving us to lead us into a right relationship with him, loving us to lead us toward holiness. And as we walk in his love, we get to demonstrate his love to the world and to each other. So, beloved, let's walk in his light and in his love that we might lead each other and lead the world, people who are far from God, into a relationship with him. Let's pray together. God, there's so much more that we could try to understand about you. And we will, we will spend our entire lives understanding you more fully. But God, I pray that as you, in your holiness, have called us out of our darkness into your light. I pray that you'd help us to bear that light in the dark places of the world around us. Help us not to do that with brashness but with love. Lord, I pray that when people see us, they see you in us. Lord, in love, you did not spare your son. You did not spare Jesus Christ in order that we might be able to walk in a right relationship with you. So God, help us to willingly sacrifice and serve so that as a body we might be strengthened. But we might also share your love with the world around us. 
Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.